Thank you to our sponsors, Class Central. It's been more than half a decade since free online courses from Stanford kicked off the modern MOOC or massive online open courses movement. Since then, more than 700 universities around the world have launched MOOCs, used by over 60 million people. Gaining insight into this fast-paced world is worth spending time on, especially for those implicated by such changes. That's where Class Central comes in. Class Central launched at the end of 2011 and has kept track of the MOOC space right from the beginning. Not only does it list 7,000 plus courses, but the excellent MOOC report blog has deep analysis on what's up, down, new or just slightly left field. With over 500 articles written, Class Central has the most comprehensive coverage of the MOOC industry. You can go and check that out at www.class-central.com forward slash report and let me know what you think. Yo, yo, yo. Hello, everyone. My name's Sophie Bailey, and this is a special episode of the EdTech podcast, direct from London EdTech Week. This week's recording is our live podcast on Is EdTech a Thing? Exploring the value of EdTech from a financial, educational, and opportunity cost point of view. Thrashing out the various nuances in the debate, you'll hear from Impact Director at the investments team at Nesta, Lucy Heddy. Senior Associate at Cooley LLP, Matt Johnson, Angel EdTech Investor, Richard Taylor, and Secondary Science Teacher and Consultant, Buki Youssef. A big shout out to all the people who came along in the UK heatwave, to Nesta for hosting and to Cooley LLP for covering the drinks until booting out time. If you're listening in and considering legal advice in the EdTech space, Cooley LLP have many international offices, including in the UK and US, and have 30 plus years in the education industry, so do go and check them out. But before all of that, London EdTech Week. What a whirlwind. This week, the EdTech podcast was at our very own live podcast, UCL's event on the democratisation of AI and education, BISA's panel on how technology can assist in schools, the full day of the EdTechX conference, then chairing Full Fabric's GDPR event on the day the Tories got caught out for illegally cold calling during the election, and finally, popping along to New York EdTech Week's pitch event in Finsbury Square. It's been a blast and we've met so many people this week, including new friends from Canada and China and old friends telling us how they copy and paste the EdTech podcast references each week after listening in on their commute. A big shout out to Lucy Carpenter, who joined us as an intern from Oxford University this week. If you're looking for a growth hacker or a whiz kid on social, get in touch as she's available to work and comes highly recommended. And a big shout out to the London EdTech Week organisers and co-chairs for launching such a great initiative. So, what did we find out at London EdTech Week? Well, number one, efficacy has featured heavily. A recent survey by BISA showed that there is insufficient information available for schools to assess the efficacy of edtech systems or content solutions, but that schools strongly disagree with the idea that there needs to be a new government agency to offer advice following the closure of UK programme BECTA in 2011. 85% of secondary schools disagree with the idea, as do 62% of primary schools. Number two, this is slightly awkward timing given the UK EdTech team have been readying their response and recommendations, but slightly hamstrung due to the PERDA rules in the UK surrounding the general election. 
While schools don't want to be restricted by Gov, I still think there's a role for top-level guidance to give confidence and direction in tandem with peer-to-peer educator reviews. Number three, international is still a focus for UK edtech companies and more international delegations appear present at the event than ever before, from New York, Israel, Finland and beyond. But audience members warned of a drain to UK school innovation if budgets and other barriers push them abroad for more immediate wins, with some investors actively stating that finance will only come if UK companies stop pushing domestically and focus their efforts instead abroad. Number four, AI was as present as ever with UCL talks on the democratisation of AI and education and many new startups in this space showcasing their work, including 360 AI and focusing on the ability of AI to make us mere humans more self-aware. For more trends from EdTechX, check out the Twitter feed at Podcast EdTech. And don't forget that speaking proposal entry windows are now also open for both South by Southwest EDU and BET 2018. So do get writing. After such excitement this Friday, we are very much chilling out back in Hackney Wick, putting together the podcast, and I'm personally starting to think about my upcoming holidays. On that note, the EdTech podcast is going on holiday in July. After a year of weekly podcasting, it's time for a little break. So I'll be chasing down the Tour de France and camping, eating baguette and shouting LA for two weeks. Fear not, there are 75 episodes for you to get through in the meantime. And I'll be back refreshed and sunburnt as usual to pick up the rest of our 2017 schedule which you can check out by emailing me at theedtechpodcast at gmail.com. We're working on adding sponsors to the second half of 2017. So if that's you, do get in contact for all the details. Have a great week, everyone, and stay cool. My name is Sophie Bailey, and I'm the founder of the EdTech Podcast. So welcome tonight. Um, Today we're going to be talking about the value of EdTech from an educator, legal and investor point of view. Um, Today's hashtag, if anyone is wondering, is EdTechPod and we will be leaving time for questions at the end. I just wanted to say a few words about the the background to today's title, Is EdTech a Thing? And this um, actually came about from a conversation I had with an M&A analyst whose um, point of view was, you know, given the the size of uh, financial deals in in the wider education space that he was used to, EdTech was rather insignificant and really a a drop in the ocean. And that got me thinking about how you'd value EdTech. So, you know, is it from that financial point of view? Is it about social impact? Is it about that governmental economic competitiveness on a global stage? Or is it about opportunity costs? So, for example, if we're investing in EdTech, what aren't we investing in? To kick off with that as a basis, uh, the first question to today's panellists is, is EdTech a thing and how should we value EdTech? So, uh, Bookie, would you like to kick off there? Okay, I believe that EdTech is a thing. Just to put into context, I'm an educator and I spent three years leading whole school projects looking at how we could use EdTech to enhance teaching and learning. And what we found is that it makes a difference in terms of transforming um, teaching and learning in ways that you could not necessarily do in a traditional sense. So definitely there is, there is a place for it. And I'm actually looking to form networks with any um, organisations that can enable schools with reduced budgets now to actually trial ed tech and software just to see how it works and actually give feedback. Okay, wonderful. 
example. Um, Lucy, you're, you're looking at this more from a, a kind of social impact perspective and there's criteria around that, so perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that point of view. Sure. So I work for Nesta's Impact Investment Fund, where we're investing both for financial return but also for social impact. Is there tech a thing? We really hope so because it's the single largest part of our portfolio. That's where we found it. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that is where we found it easiest to see this alignment between commercial returns and social impact. So absolutely, it is a thing. Um, how we value edtech is by looking at impact on on children's learning. Are we reducing the attainment gap for uh, disadvantaged children? Also, are we expanding opportunity, helping everyone access careers and make the most um, make the most of their talents? I would say, unfortunately, we don't see as much evidence as we would like out there. We also don't see people using the evidence that is already out there. And I think if we make more use of what's already out there, we can increase the value of the edtech in the market. Okay. Uh, Richard, let's go to you next. I think your answer is yes, but. Uh, Actually, I I think I would speak completely different. No, edtech is not a bloody thing. Education is a thing. And I think we go up a linguistic cul-de-sac when we talk about edtech. And I think we've been doing it for quite a long time. I think measuring edtech by financial metrics is probably the best way to look at it. Because if you look at it from a political and government perspective or a pedagogical perspective, and I can barely say it, let alone spell it, um, all you're going to do is end up having sort of endless, sort of pointless arguments. I've, I've never met two, two academic educators who could agree on the colour of a door, let alone you know, how to teach a child something. Um, and politicians come and go. And frankly, most of the research I see about edtech products is absolute crap. And I see quite a lot of it. Um, and unlike most people, I don't just read what the BBC report about it. I download it and actually read how they've done it. Uh, and it's rather disappointing when you see you know, reviews of things saying how great they are. And you actually read the research and actually it's a lot less, uh, it's normally cherry picking of results. So from a financial point of view, yes, edtech is a thing. It's bigger than your um, rather stupid M&A friend would, would tend to think. Because a lot of the M&A stuff doesn't happen in public. Um, and a lot of it is transnational. You know, you've got people like Leeds Equity paying, I think, £66 million pounds for 25% of inter-university partnerships. And one of the fundamental problems in this area is a lack of knowledge. You know, the biggest exit in the UK edtech sector was Education Cities, which was seven years ago, at about £80 million pounds and 14 times EBITDA. So, you know, yes, it is a thing, but most of the people you'll hear talking about it honestly don't know their answer for elbow. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, uh, Matthew, would you like to uh, just give your perspective as well? Yeah, yeah sure. So I'll say yes, but as well. I mean, yes, it is a, th- a thing, but it's not an easy thing, especially from an entrepreneur's standpoint. It's a, it's a tough market. It's one that's highly fragmented, a lot of barriers to entry. Uh, long sales cycles, um, and and so I think a lot of it depends on what are your expectations, what are your um, long-term goals. If it's to get rich quick, this isn't the space. Um, but you can be successful, and it just takes um, you know the effort to know the market, know your customers, know the regulations that that are going to impact you, and, and doing that as soon in your process of building a company as you can. Okay, so I mean I think we all alluded to this in our in our answers, but. Um, 
how do we navigate the breadth of edtech out there? So there have been multiple attempts to create advisory services on what might have impact, but ultimately word of mouth still reigns supreme among educators, stu students and corporate companies. So previously we've had things like Vector, we've heard tonight from Rocket Fund on them trying to develop their marketplace. Um, there's the NACE framework for procurement which was developed with the DfE and many others out there. So. Um, organizations like Educate and the Jefferson Education Accelerator in the US. Um, a question to Bookie, um, is word of mouth a problem or is it a natural filtering system? And do we need something more sophisticated to identify true value? Um, I, I wondered if in your answers whether you could talk to how you use your um, IT go-to yeah, guys to kind of guys. help decide. Uh, what products and services you might use. Okay, um, so because when I started my role, I wasn't very experienced about the different products. I am the type of person that gets really excited when I see glitzy things, but I don't ask the right type of questions to go beneath. But I've got my three IT guys on Twitter. And if I hear of something, either on Twitter or firsthand, I would actually say to them, okay, what do you know about this particular thing? And give me some ideas about, you know, like how staff are using it, how students are actually using it, et cetera, et cetera. And I always ask the key question, because I can never find this, what impact does it actually have on student outcomes? And um, it is, there will be bias obviously in there, because there will probably be lots of products that I'm not even aware of. But one of the things I do know is that teachers talk to teachers and teachers listen to teachers. So if you know teachers who can give you the, the ins and outs about how it works, what you need to do and all the rest of it, and actually save you a heck of a lot of time. In my case, it took us about, say, 12 to 18 months to realise that iPads were not the best devices for us. Actually, we needed a key-based um, board device. We went for Chromebooks, lighter, quicker, and did the roles that we actually want. Now, if we'd actually had some ideas or conversations with staff in other schools across the UK, or even um, across the pond, that would have saved time, and then would have, you know, influenced our um, decisions about the tech that we actually use. And uh, just a quick question. Has a randomised control trial ever affected your purchasing decisions? <laughs> no. <laughs> in short. No. So, Lucy, I mean, what does that mean in terms of uh, criteria-based um, investments? Because I would imagine, to some extent, that that can be quite frustrating if it limits what you can invest in as well. Sure. So, we're looking for products that have evidence of impact. That doesn't necessarily mean that the companies we invest in are doing randomised controlled trials themselves. Where we see the value of that really robust evidence is that they help us see what is important for EdTech to be effective. We know through randomised control trials, this, it always sounds like uh, sounds obvious after the fact, but we know how important it is for tech products to be linked into the curriculum, for the teachers to have control how, over how they're used. Well, this is not something through an RCT, but things like, is tech even used? Once it's bought, does it just sit in a cupboard or are teachers using it? So we look for the companies that we invest in to have looked at the full range of evidence out there and be applying that to their interventions. We then work with the companies that we've invested in to develop proportionate measurement systems. So sometimes if the evidence just isn't there, we would work with them to invest in a more rigorous trial. But it's... Um, when we talk about how should an RCT change what you do, it should inform what you look for in a product. We're not saying everyone out there has to do an RCT. And Richard, I mean, you just alluded to your sort of scepticism around FSC trials, but um, I know that you're quite passionate about open APIs. Well, I, I think one of the problems with the impact was all, all it really shows you is which, the, which way the sheep you would look at are jumping today. And 
opened up, I, I, I've banged on about this for years. I think if you're going to spend public money on EdTech, more than 90% of EdTech products and services don't work. And the stuff that companies talk about and the research they try out is, is worse than crap. It's you know, often mendacious and lies. So I think if you have open data APIs, it, it forces people to put what the how teachers are using. Because it, 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 you can boil this down to something really simple. Does your product help a teacher teach or help a child learn? And if it doesn't, <laughs> All that you've done from an investor's perspective is back the wrong horse in the race. And you've got to take it out, shoot, and, and, and try and find another one to, to, to bet on. And it's, I see things like Rocket Fund, and it sort of reminds me, unfortunately, of a sort of pale version of, of Bechter and what they were trying to do. And for anyone here who's got a bit of grey hair, and I can see Merlin sitting down the front writing, he and I you know, have very different ideas about Bechter, but I, you know, I, I, th I thought it was a really good organisation to have a job with, but it probably didn't really do as much for schools <laughs> as, it th as it thought it did. I think procurement framework can be great, but the um, DFE a few years ago set up a thing called the Center for Procure Procurement Performance. Pretty difficult to say. Uh, and the guy who ran it, his metric for his success was that how many people he had in his team. It wasn't that schools actually saved anything. anything. It's that he had like 80 people in, in, in his policy team. So, you know, that, that, that can be quite, quite tricky. Yes, professional and personal recommendations are, they're the king and the queen of how stuff gets done in ed tech. You know, you ask other teachers. And I don't think I've ever had a teacher who, as Bookie said, has asked about a randomised control trial. But I like the sort, in terms of research, the two things I like, I like what Tom Burnett's doing at Research Ed, because they're trying to make teachers more research literate and help them make better decisions about buying stuff that might actually be relevant. I think if you're going to do research, you've got to sort of piss off the whole idea of doing this academic seven-year stuff that doesn't work and do things a bit like Ryan, uh, Roland Fry and his team at Harvard do in their innovation and education unit where the whole research thing, go to woe, is 12 months. And it's really, really impactful. That's the sort of stuff. And I never hear anyone in the UK who does research talk about this. You know, most people are sort of far more interested in trying to get, get some research funding from Horizon 2020 than they are actually doing something that might make a difference in schools. Lucy, you're raising your eyebrows. Any, uh... I'd have to agree about the, the quality of research out there. Uh, I think it sometimes speaks to where the whole edtech industry is not focused enough on what teachers want to have in their classroom. Research is not focused enough on what teachers want to know or what policymakers want to know. But I, I ran a thing with Cambridge called every uh, sort of um, ed invent where we tried to get teachers to come up with edtech ideas and you know after pumping 200 grand through it with Cambridge it was 50% a great success, 50% a failure, but the ideas teachers came up with were great because teachers aren't really part of the EdTech ecosystem and how products are imagined and, and designed and made. Um, and I was going to say one, one, one quick thing is that you know, when we talk about impact, there was a very interesting study of 160 impact, it was a meta study of 160 impact studies that said, you know, actually doing impact sort of investing doesn't really make any difference. It doesn't make you do badly, but it actually doesn't make you do any better. And you know, if you'd like to look at that, I think it's a 2010 Harvard Business Review. But I've got a link in, in my presentation somewhere. Okay. Um, moving on slightly. So last year saw a 7% dip in school ICT spend. With such budgetary pressures in education, large shifts to free services in the cloud or an app or via online le learning services, how do we avoid the value of edtech becoming a chase to the bottom? So, um, and should we be worried about the association of cheap edtech and therefore a perception of cheap education? So my question to panelists is, how do we protect the value of edtech but also the value of our data? 
And do we need to be conscious that the value of edtech is sometimes hidden in tangential services? Um, so Matthew, to yes. kick off, I know we spoke previously about uh, recent legal challenges to, for example, Google and Class Dojo. Yeah, I mean, I think so. One of the biggest questions I think comes up in ed tech companies is how do you monetize it, um, especially when you see a lot of uh, programs that are either free or freemium and, and being able to transition customers um, that are using it for free, whether it's teachers or schools, into to paying customers is a challenge. I think there's a lot of interest um, in that, you know, and I think a lot of concern in that, um, you know, if, if a company is, is free, if, if, you know, there is no charge for it, you know, how are they making money if they are? And, um, you know, certainly in the U.S., um, privacy and data security concerns um, with EdTech have been, um, you know, significant issues over the last couple of years. And, you know, there's a lot of concern that, um, you know, that some companies are either collecting, you know, um, or using data in potentially inappropriate ways. And I think um, if that is uh, the strategy for our company, it's probably not going to be a successful one uh, in most places and, and is relatively short-sighted. But I think um, it has gotten some companies into a little bit of hot water um, having to defend their practices. And, and certainly as an early stage company, it's something you want to be proactive about, about um, making sure that you're um, you know, looking early at what sort of data you're collecting, how you're using it, how you are securing it. Um, because uh, you know, I, I think you know, the one thing I would say about publicity and, and how to assess um, you know, ed tech companies is, is that what you don't want to be is you know, the story in the news that, that is you know, the, the um, the, the cautious or uh, the cautionary tale of, of not taking these things seriously. And I, th I think you spoke previously about there sort of being a patchwork of legal approaches to this because of a legacy law around data. Is that right? Well, and, and, and so especially if you're if you're working across borders, every country uh, for the most part has its own data privacy, data security laws. In the U.S., actually, uh, for the most part, it's a state level thing. So if you're looking to sell into the U.S., it's the sort of thing that you may have to do differently in New York than you do in California. Um, and so it is very patchwork out there. A lot of the basics are kind of, you know, somewhat the same, but but it's it's a struggle to to deal with. And at in the U.S. at the federal level, actually, there is almost no um, data privacy law, um, which has kind of resulted in this patchwork uh, set of laws. There's there's one law in the books that was passed in 1974 that um, you know considers data security, you know, uh, you know, locking the file cabinet at the end of the night. So. It's, it's, it's created, I think, a unique and challenging, you know, already, um, you know, education is a very highly regulated um, field or market to get into, and it is one, you know, additional level that you have to pay attention to uh, to be successful. And Bookie, from your point of view, um, how do you balance the needs for sort of low-cost services versus, you know, regulating data compliance and making sure that side of things is covered off within the school as well? Okay, so what, what we did is we actually had a lot of protocols and systems in place in terms of date, protecting the data and actually having clear-cut things. We even went as far as when we had the sixth-form students with their mobile devices about authorised user policies so that you know, we're very clear about what they should do and what they shouldn't do in any... I suppose, sanctions if they actually contravene that. When we decided um, as a school to actually go for Google Apps for Education, I know it's called Google Suites for Education, 
we were sold by the idea it was free, but then once we actually were involved with it, there were a lot of questions that um, staff were asking about, well, where exactly does this data sit and how safe is it? We had um, an external IT consultant actually trying to you know, um, say that things were safe, but I never actually saw anything in writing to make sure it was safe. Because from our school perspective, we were very clear about how we ensured that data was being protected. But having someone else or another organisation on board, there was a real grey area, and um, and I think that was that's something that definitely needs to be looked into. And another thing, I know it's a slight aside, I think this idea about it being free is is a myth, because we were told yes, it's really free, so we got everything you know sorted out. We initially had a lot of things with so like obviously sites, three six five, moved over to Google as for education. And then in order to get all the devices that we had um, on board managed, we had to pay £20 a device. When we calculated it, it worked out to be the same, almost the same as like a, a virtual learning environment. And I just thought, hmm, no one actually said that before as part of the initial discussion. So I'm a little bit cynical yeah. now when I hear the word free Check because I asked what are the hidden costs okay. that are involved. Um, and Lucy, from social impact point of view, I mean... I think there's 70 million children who still don't have access to education. So um, free sounds very appealing from that point of view if it means you know any access to education. So do you have a kind of perspective on, on those services as well? So clearly if, if something's free, that increases access, that can increase scale. And that should be a good thing. But I would say a lot of our experience would echoes what Bucky is saying that is the, is the free part of the model really having an impact? Uh, one thing that we do know about research from education is that it's really, really hard to improve learning for children. Effect sizes are tiny across the board. And so and we see when the things that we invest in are creating impact, you're not just selling the app or the software, that might be free. You're also trying to sell behaviour change, the way a teacher is behaving in a classroom, the way a whole school is operating and using data, and that is rarely free. So what often a free model means the model without the support required to really implement what's happening. I think from a, on the data perspective, just as an aside, there might be interesting issues emerging not just about proprietary data but also about proprietary algorithms. So as people start to use these apps which collect data about how students learn, they start to affect how resources are diverted. Maybe in a small level, how teachers spend their time in the classroom. Maybe on a big level, about who gets more resources. And so whether people will continue to be able to make money from proprietary algorithms and keep those secret, um, I think time will tell. Richard, did you have a... Look, I, th I think the, the reality is you're stupid if you think anything's free in this planet. And th th <laughs> there is nothing that's free except maybe dying and being born. Um, you've got to look at the business models of people who operate in ed tech, and they're not always, you know, sort of, I'm going to charge you and, and, and give you possibly a product or a service. And I'll give you a great example. In the States, virtually every school uses Clever as a single sign-on. It's free for schools. If you're an ed tech company, it's not free. Now, a mate of mine used to run a company in Australia called Study Ladder that does free content for primary schools. And it's in quite a profitable one. Unfortunately, he dropped dead recently, so it didn't help him much. Um, the problem in the States is you can't give, you can't give Study Ladder a free product away to schools for free because Clever charged him $1,000 per school per year to give it away for free. 
So it means that if they've got 10,000 schools in the States, you know, they've suddenly got a very big hit to their bottom line. So your business, you've got to look at the business model of all the products, and, and they're, they're not always you know, entirely obvious. I mean, I had a company in Australia where we um, got Kraft to sponsor it, and this is right at the start before the internet really existed, and they gave us 300 grand a year in cash for a million co-op marketing. We could give it away for free because we made a million dollars over four years because we had pretty much no overheads because Kraft paid for everything. Um, I, I think the thing, when you, when you talk about, oh, I get, I get nervous about you know, what people are doing with my data and security and stuff, how many schools have got a SIM server or all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. sitting there with all that stuff? And I hear all these teachers say, oh, I couldn't put my SIM stuff in the cloud, but I can still come into your school and steal it, and I bet it's not encrypted. So the level of thinking about this is, is pretty, you know, pretty sort of juvenile sometimes. Putting stuff in the cloud is a hell of a lot more secure than normally leaving it sitting on your school premises for some, someone to come and steal after hours. And a good example, and I'd all point to you, there's a great story from EdSearch from several years ago from the founder of EduBlogs in Australia, who were the, the biggest educational blogging platform in the world, about 5 million blogs. And he said the biggest mistake they ever made was having a free, giving a free product away. They know within 24 hours, if you don't convert, you'll never convert. Mm -hmm. And you might become a power user, but if you don't convert in that first 24 hours, you're costing them money forever. So it's, it, it's, it's quite a tricky thing. And when you look at the big companies, once you really give stuff away for free, like Google and less so Apple and people like that, why are they doing it? Well, you know, part of it they see is the cost of doing business with, with, with government. Uh, part of it, I think, is very cheap reputation washing because, frankly, for those companies, the most substantive thing they could do to improve education in almost any big Western country would be, would be just to pay a decent amount of tax because they're trying to write the, re, you know, the basic social contract between enterprise and the state. <laughs> I'm an entrepreneur to my bootstraps, but I don't figure that I'm going to address extremism and things like that by not paying tax and by not having schools be able to address those sort of fundamental you know, long-term programs. And I think that's, it, it's quite a serious issue we don't talk about in tech and in ed tech and in this country generally. And it's something we're going to have to face up to because you know, Google apps are free and they probably manage data well. They've had two really high-profile court cases in America. And what was really interesting was one of these happened when I was at, um, uh, not GSVA, she one of those big American conferences the other year. And I had to ask the editor of EdSurge whether they were actually going to report on it. And it came out as this tiny little story, because unfortunately I think they used to get a lot of their funding from, from those people. So you don't really want to sort of shit in your own nest and, and do nasty stories about people. I think Google and, and those sort of people are actually very positive in education, but there is no such thing as free. And it, you know, teachers, parents, and students have to know that. And I think ideally, every individual should own their data from the EdTech product they use. It'll, it'll get around so many of these really tricky issues. Okay, so next up, let's look at the opportunity cost to EdTech, if there is one. So, Professor John Hattie, director of the Melbourne Educational Research Institute, remarks, there are a million resources available in, on the internet, and creating more seems among the successful wastes of time in which teachers love to engage. So to my panellists, is this a fair assessment? Um, is there an opportunity cost to EdTech? And does it risk being an additional time waste for educators? So Bookie, that's that one's for you, first of all. Four or five years ago, the rage was iPads and people just buying them where they could actually see an impact. This is what I saw anyway. Um, and about two years later, this is when I actually started my role, a lot of these devices which had been invested in weren't used in the way in which they were because there wasn't a clear rationale. There wasn't, we, you know, there wasn't clarity about what we expected them to do and, more importantly, how it would look like in the lessons, the impact on students. So I think if we were to go back in time with what I know now, 
I would say, hold back on spending that money on the iPads and actually think about maybe giving it, you know, like in terms of CPD maybe for staff to actually go out to schools or the places of their choice, actually see these things in action. So it's more personalised, they actually have control of it. So in that regard, I would say definitely, you know, that I would re-divert the, the funds and okay. think about a different way of using it. And Richard, I mean, you've spoken before about um, time management and, uh, you know, in terms of teachers and perhaps EdTech being a distraction. The, the, the most valuable resource in the whole education area is a teacher's time. It's, mm -hmm. a it's, it's as valuable as a, as a doctor or a surgeon or any of those sort of people. And unfortunately, lots of teachers use it badly. The number of teachers I've talked to said, oh, yeah, I spent two hours last week on TS Resources trying to find this free thing. Well, your time's worth a minimum of 40 quid an hour. You just wasted 80 quid of, of your time. Now, opportunity cost may be the sort of classical scarcity, you know, economic theory, but there's a really practical application. And if you use EdTech in the school, does it waste your teacher's time? But the really fundamental thing it, it comes down to, there are two things. One is, if you use EdTech, you're probably replacing something. Because the school day and the curriculum and the budgets are very fixed. So if something comes in, the reality is something has to go out. You have to decide in terms of opportunity cost, what you're foregoing, is it worthwhile in terms of time and, and effort? And Tom Bennett you know, sort of wrote a critical thing about Minecraft a while ago and was absolutely pilloried online. But actually, he was right. Because if you want to use so Minecraft in your school... We should drain the swamp of gimmicks, I yeah. think this quote. And, and the reality is that, that you know, lots of schools might want to use Minecraft. It might be great, but what are you not doing if you're doing Minecraft? And it's like some of the sort of computer literacy stuff and the coding stuff you see in schools. It's just ticket punching for Ofsted. It's not actually you know, delivering deeper computer literacy. And so opportunity cost is a really big thing in education. And I think one of the things it relates to is the network effect, because successful ed tech companies normally use the network effect. And, and two examples I would give you is Turnitin and Teachers Pay Teachers. If Teachers Pay Teachers gets bigger and, and gives money back to teachers, pure meritocracy. The crap sinks to the bottom and the cream goes to the top and that cream then goes to the teachers who create it. And better content, more users, more users, more people creating good content. That's the network effect. Unfortunately, I don't see enough of that on TES resources. I'm sure they're trying as hard as buggery to do it, but you know, they blew 10 million in America trying, trying to copy it uh, with share my, uh, the share my lesson they did with the American Teachers Union and that was you know, a 10 million that went straight to the bottom line. So. I would say in ed tech and in education generally, opportunity cost is one of the biggest issues people have to really get their head around. Happy, do you have any? Uh, no, I would just say, I mean, uh, you know, when you're starting out especially and, and you're thinking about, you know, how you're, you're presenting your company, one, I think the most basic questions you have to answer is how are you making, you know, whether it's the teacher or the administrator, how are you making their job easier? Because if you're giving them something new to do, um, you know, how is that making their day a little bit easier? Um, and if you can't answer that question convincingly, that, that's a problem. Lucy, anything to add on opportunity cost? Just that we, we're attracted to businesses where that the idea started with the problem and they worked out how to solve the problem. So they're going in trying, saying, here's a way to uh, analyze your data more efficiently. Here is a way to deliver one-to-one uh, -one personalized tuition cheaply to help your students catch up in mathematics. So 
the, it, it's about make, it also helps to make schools more efficient. Technology can be a very cheap, efficient way of solving a lot of problems out there. Uh, however, having said that, the time it takes to find the right thing for teachers I think, is huge. And so that's why uh, with Rocket Fund, we're trying to expand that site to have more teacher reviews um, and link that to the marketplace so that it's much more straightforward for, to crowdsource opinions from other teachers about their experiences of using EdTech. And Bookie, if you were going to pinpoint some of the biggest problems that you would like to see solved, and if EdTech ed could help with them, what would be the sort of top three, do you think? Just to put you on the spot. Put me on the spot. Mm, something to do with marking and feedback, perhaps. I think number one looking at systematic ways or effective ways of doing that. So you've got the you know, like current debates about whether you should have written feedback in books, student books, or verbal feedback. Mm. And I know of some educators, including myself, who actually try and combine the two by actually providing like, sound bites of oral feedback that students can then actually work on. Something that would actually cut the marking down would be effective. Well, get your summer holidays back. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I say yeah. one thing too? I've been very kumbaya and you know, sort of quite nice to people. Actually, one of the things I, I would say is, is that I think we need more stick and less carrot when it comes to EdTech. We've put probably in excess of 10 billion in the UK into BBC Jam and e-learning credits and all sorts of crap like that. And most of it has not moved the dial at all. And I think you get to a point, and I had this in my own company once, where, where we had this CRM system. I wanted my staff to use it after six months that they didn't, and all the nice stuff I did for them didn't work, and in the end they said, I'll just sack you all next week if you don't start using it. And oddly enough, they all started using it. <laughs> and I, I saw a school, a private school up in, um, up in the country with the same issue. They were trying to get their teachers to do this really nice sort of open badge thing about using tech. And they, and, and they did it nicely and they cajoled them and after a year no one had done it. And when they said it's going to go in their performance evaluation, it was all done in three weeks. Mm. So I, I, th I think, you know, as much as I can try and be nice about this, sometimes we do need a bit more stick. Do you agree? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Okay, so we talked a bit about the social impact aspect and opportunity costs. So um, what about the financials? Uh, Richard, what are some of the best and worst deals you've seen and is there any commonality between the best? Um, actually, the best deal on EdTech ever, you've all heard about it, but you don't know about it. Pearson sold a thing uh, a couple of, about a year ago called PowerSchool for $350 million. The guy who did PowerSchool, who sold it originally in, there were two founders back in um, 2001, sold it to Apple for $62 million of Apple shares. If they had have kept those shares to this day, the shares would be worth, um, I'm just trying to, oh, I, I actually calculate quite accurately, they would have got $231 million in dividends and $6 billion. The shares would be worth $6 billion. So almost the same market cap as Pearson on the stock exchange today. So that's probably the best deal that, that, that ever happened in EdTech, well, that was sort of accidental. In the UK, it was probably Education Cities, um, which I think was really great. That went into a US company who were bought, then went bankrupt, and it's now called, I think, Tomo Brava or, or something else. Um, a couple of the ones that I, I've done that, that went really well, we had this little maths tutoring thing years ago in Australia back in about 98 called Daisy Maths. We made a million dollars out of that over four years from Craft because we had a university who paid all of our costs. And when they pulled out uh, after four years for, for some complicated reasons, I can tell you later, uh, we just walked away with a million dollars. And it was, it, was, it was great, you know, in, out. Because the hardest thing in EdTech is getting your money out. I can put as much money as I like into EdTech companies, getting it out is like giving, well, I shouldn't say giving birth because you're out to have a baby, but, you know, it, 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 it's like that while someone's shooting at you and you're trying to do brain surgery. 
I mean, one of the companies I, I, I did with Paul Birch, we uh, it was called, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, um, that Tut Pup. We sold it to the guys at Moshi Monsters and we got some equity in that. It was great. You know, Moshi Monsters at one point was valued at 180 million pounds by some stupid analyst who you know, was interested in things like discounted cash flow and all that sort of crap. And actually, I was offered 60 grand for my 900 grand worth of those shares. And those shares, frankly, are worth nothing now. So one of the key things in investing is knowing how and when to get your money up, and it's really difficult. There's, there's an odd little one in Australia, again, which is um, Oz Email, which made the current Australian Prime Minister a multi-millionaire. My wife used to run the biggest educational publishing company out there, and they started selling internet access into schools, Oz Email stuff, in 1994. And it was incredibly successful, and that was the thing that really made the company work in the first place. So it's often not the things that you think about, one of my favourite ones locally is Night Zookeeper. I can tell you, I can't tell you who, but they've just signed a very big publishing deal with a major international publisher for a six-book series and are doing some other stuff. But I'll have to let them announce that. And I was their first in investor and picked them as a winner at Learning Without Frontiers. I think if you want to operate in this space, you've got to be active. You've got to be involved with things like Leg Up and Learning Without Frontiers and pretty much everything that goes along. Because if you're not out there sniffing around and, and reading business plans and all that sort of stuff. You're never going to see or, or find these things. And unfortunately, the things that normally seem the best are often terrible. And don't believe it when, I mean, every pitch deck I get says that my company, straight out of an incubator, is worth a million pounds. Well, that's a load of crap. I can buy 100 Cumon franchises for a million pounds or a small McDonald's. Well, I can tell you which of those you know, three options are going to make me some money fairly quickly. In EdTech, from a startup point of view, it takes at least seven years. And I, you know, I say this all the time, your only other career prospect if you want to be a good ed tech entrepreneur is to be a hell's angel. Because you're one of those one percenters on the side of society. You're going to have seven years of no pension, no holidays. It'll probably tank your relationship. You'll live in a, live in a rat hole. And you know, if you can hack that for seven years, you might survive as an educational entrepreneur. It doesn't mean you'll make any money, but you might survive at it. But for most people, they need to be in the real world. And trying to make money out of ed, ed tech, it's not impossible. But, you know, it's, it's no more than high-stakes gambling. And people like me think, you know, we know the form a bit better. But at the end of the day, it's a horse race that takes seven years and probably half of them you have to take out behind the shed and shoot after the third year. You know, that's, that, that's the reality. It's not pretty. And, and Richard, uh, you and uh, Matthew also spoke previously about, you know, from an entrepreneur's point of view, how to preserve the value of their EdTech ventures. So also talking about uh, sort of different hierarchies of legal practice and um, you know using that to perhaps take over in covert ways small operations so do you want to talk about how how best to preserve your value if you're an <laughs> yeah, entrepreneur in the room yeah and, and especially you know when you're thinking about this from the outset when you're just starting out um, you know I, I, I have two thoughts you know one think very you know uh, very strategically about how you're entering into this market as, as Richard said it it can really take time to, to build into it to become successful and I think that um, that is especially true if you're looking at the you know the, the K to 12 you know education market uh, and to some extent also you know traditional um, colleges and university markets um, I think that there is um, you know uh, I think a, a much growing interest in um, when you're looking toward adult learning, career and lifelong learning, and and thinking about that. Uh, but think about you know how you can maybe you know cross over into other areas as well. Um, you know the other thing I would say as far as preserving your value is is 
do things the right way from the outset. Um, you know, you're, you're not just an ed tech product, you're a company and you need to, you know, do things the right way. So, you know, what does that mean? It means basically if, if there was one rule, it would be get it in writing, do everything formally. Um, you know, your, your co-founder may be your best friend, it may be your spouse, uh, and you may feel awkward trying to tell them that you need to have a written, you know, founder's agreement or a vesting schedule or things like that. But um, when you, um, you know, if everyone was going to do exactly what they said, you, you wouldn't need contracts, you wouldn't need lawyers. Um, but I guess maybe thankfully for me, not everyone uh, always does what they say they're going to do. Um, so, you know, take things seriously, be strategic, be smart, and, um, you know, don't, um, you know, uh, you know, don't, uh, you know, skimp on, you know, the basics from the beginning. Um, it, it really does, I think, set you up in a much better position to succeed. It's very hard to raise money if you don't have some of this stuff later on. But the reality is, if, if you're an edtech startup, you've got a limited amount of money. So what are you going to spend it on? Are you going to spend it on product development or lawyers? Well, lawyers, are what you want you to spend it on lawyers. And you have to spend some and make sure you get a good lawyer. Because, to be honest, particularly in startups, and people come along and say, I oh, will do this pro bono work for you. And they normally get the, the dumbest sort of intern to do it and it ends up sort of you know, biting you in the ass later on. You get someone like Matt or a really good lawyer and you make sure you get value out of it and make sure you manage the process. Mm -hmm. My old corporate lawyer in Australia is a great guy. He, and if you take him off the leash, he's like a, a Rottweiler with babies who are covered in dog food. But if you ring him up, and I, I'll ring him saying, I've got the shits with somebody, I want to sue them. And he, his advice for 25 years has always been the same. Go home, have a bottle of wine. If you still got the shits tomorrow, ring up and make an appointment. And actually, it's the best legal advice you can get. And one of the other things I would say when it comes to law, most ed tech companies think that they've got all this really valuable IP. Well, the reality is you probably don't. Mm -hmm. And actually, there's not a lot of point in, in spending heaps and heaps of money trying to protect your IP if you can't defend it. Yeah. Because litigation funders, you know, if you want to sue someone, aren't going to queue up to, to, to fund your case for you. They're just going to tell you to get lost. So you've got to, it, it's a tricky balance. But I would, I would argue strongly in a lot of cases that ed tech startups can waste a lot of money trying to get IP that they're never going to be able to defend in the first place. Your best defense is innovation and iteration. It, it, it isn't sort of you know, spending 200 grand getting a patent. Okay, um, we've got time for questions now, so I'm going to dive straight into some from Slido, um, and then we'll perhaps take some with raised hands as well. And then at the end, we're going to just finish with a few takeaways from each of the panelists. So first question from Slido, how could we help teachers be more research literate? Does anyone want to jump on that? I think things like research ed are quite good. I mean, I mean, you know, some people probably don't want to do it because it's Tom, but I, I really like Tom. The fundamental thing they're trying to do is to say, actually, to make better decisions, you need to know whether the, that the claims people make are good or, or, or they're not so good because your time and, and all those things are so valuable. And because generally in schools or in education, users aren't the decision makers, which is one of the really crucial things. If users, I mean, if you talk to anyone in your school, yeah, I bet the school didn't buy them the phone. They bought it because they bought the phone they wanted. Yet when it comes to EdTech, the user very rarely gets much of a chance to actually buy what they want. I mean, someone did comment, actually, that where is the student voice on the panel, which is a fair comment. Um, we were restricted to four people on the panel, but that's no excuse, so um, fair one on that. Um, this is a question from Janice. So, um, hello, Janice. Um, should we measure impact beyond student achievement, so student well-being, engagement, etc.? 
I think we should be measuring whatever impact it is that that piece of technology is trying to achieve. So, and that is where people go wrong, wrong when they get fixated on one particular outcome that they could be think should be measured across all, um, ever, all different technologies, no matter what the situation. For each bit of edtech, what are you trying to achieve? How are you trying to achieve that? Measure that final outcome, but also measure the steps on the way. If your tech is about improving outcomes because children are more engaged in the classroom, measure where the children are more engaged in the classroom. Okay, um, I've got a comment here which perhaps is more relevant to Alex and the audience, but um, why hasn't the English government committed to EdTech and education like the Welsh government, 1.3 billion? Um, any comments from the panellists? Because the English government... When we had Victor in, in, in the previous Labour government, they tried to do some really great stuff. And we had things like London Challenge. We thought made enormous changes. Frankly, I think the biggest change in the improvement in London might have come from tutoring and not from London Challenge. And it's a little like snow in London. You know, we don't bother have, having stuff to clear the snow because it's cheaper to, 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 to deal with it, the crisis when, actually when it happens. And I, I sometimes think that by not having such an interventionist approach and not forcing schools and giving the money to have LMSs and to have interactive whiteboards and things like that, almost that accidental absence may have been better. And it's going to come back to the question about cutting budgets. And oddly enough, I'm probably the only person here who's going to think cutting budgets to schools is a good thing for IT. Because it's going to make you have bloody laser-like focus on where you spend your money. Because so much of it is pissed up against the wall and has been for years. You've got to make better, tougher decisions. And if the only way we, you, you can do that is, is with less money, I'm sorry, I'm all for it. I, I, would, I, I agree in some cases about having the laser focus on decisions. But sometimes as well you get these, I have no idea who you'd call them salespeople, educational consultants, whatever, who make these claims and almost lean on some schools and educators, what have you, leadership team, to use these particular things because you're not being innovative or whatever, whatever. So I think some people are lulled into a false sense of security. But I do agree in the fact that, you know, maybe with the budget cuts, if any IT money is being spent on IT, they will have more strategic thinking behind it. And the amount of money spent on ed tech, actually in the overall education budget, about 95% of it goes in salaries and pensions anyhow. So, you know, we're talking about fairly modest cuts. And even though you'd prefer not to have them, I always think about my, where my nephews went to school in Australia, where they bought every kid in the school a MacBook Air. Now, I did the back of the envelope calculation, and over three years, the difference between 1,200 MacBook Airs and 1,200 Chromebooks was about $7 million. That was the cost of 45 extra teachers and their pensions and professional development every year. What that school needed was more, more good teachers, not a whole lot of virtue signaling Mac devices to try and show that the potential audience of private school parents that you should send your kids to this school because we've got, we've got MacBook Airs for all our kids. You know, what, what, what the signal sent out to me was this school is run by idiots. <laughs> I think that it's not automatic though, is it? You need to invest money to make good choices. Ch teachers need to be trained in how to use technology to choose the right stuff. If through cuts, uh, schools are getting rid of people who are trained in IT, who know how to make good choices, it might lead to worse tech in the classroom. Most of the people I see who are trained in IT are network managers who are the ones preventing everything going to the cloud. They're often the, 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 the biggest barrier in the whole of the sort of ed, ed tech world, the number of them I, I come into, oh, you, we can't have any of that stuff, it doesn't work, it's all crap, because actually it means you know, I'm going to be out of a job. 
So uh, a question from Duncan McMillan to, uh, to Bookie. Mm -hmm. How do you know when something works and what convinces you to persist with the technology in your classroom? Um, okay, good question. Uh, I look at the engagement of students and in terms of you know students with lower prior attainment, if they find it difficult, what I, I've taught classes, for example, um, my set eight of eight GCSE group who found it very difficult to remember things. We used to use Kahoot on a Friday lesson. I had science, trying to teach them science, last lesson on a Friday. Um, so what we did is actually use Kahoot, which is like the fun element, but it enabled them to review and revise and remember GCC content. And so the engagement with it, because you know, anything to do with science, oh, can't be bothered, but at least they got the engagement with it. And you could see the great thing, I mentioned Kahoot because you actually get a spreadsheet of the results of students with the questions. So you can see simple, you know, if they got it right, it's green. If they got it red, it's pink or red or what have you. So you can actually look at week on week week-on-week -week progression as well as engagement with, with that. So something like that. Um, we look at student outcomes. Obviously, we're, all schools are judged by student outcomes. So that's going to be the number one thing. If you're, making such a, if you're actually having such a major investment in IT, you want it to have some impact in that regard. Um, and that, I think they're basically some of the two crude indicators I actually look at in the first okay. instance. Yeah. Um, few final questions. Um, from what age does EdTech start to be relevant for kids? Quite a good one. Okay, sorry. Did you have a question as well? I think you had a question about an hour ago, so we should definitely go for that. Yeah, no, no problem. It was. I was actually uh, had the question. It was uh, due with what you were just speaking about in regards to the ecosystem and how you're working with uh, individual companies. So I mean, I'm, I'm living in. Uh, working in Finland and we have an ecosystem in uh, the city of Espo where they have um, basically made with the schools so any product that you have you can basically put it into the schools the teachers and the students use it and basically work together in order to create something that actually has pedagogical value um, and then afterwards they get a certificate where they can basically go to other places and say we've made this with students and teachers here's the evidence the city of Espo doesn't lie about these things. Mm -hmm. um, so I was, I'm just uh, curious about um, the, the different dynamics in, in the UK, because I spoke with the educational department, why that isn't the same here, because it seems like a simple, uh, a simple process, I, I, or maybe it's not, I, I don't know. But um, I, I just wanted to get your, your, your thoughts on something like that, because if you want to use EdTech and you want it to be a thing, that would, be, that would make the most sense to have the teachers have a say in what's made. Well, I think 17 years ago we had e-learning credits, and that that was, you know, in theory you had to be approved beyond there. And you know, I, I worked when I was at the department on this, and it was a huge amount of money. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Merlin, you might know this. It was like 600 million dollars or yeah. pounds every couple of years. They were just trying to get stuff into schools. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and, and they weren't e-learning. I mean, it's very easy to criticise backwards, but there was no very little technology in schools, and somebody had to do something. I, I thought it, it, it was a great idea. And I think we, you know, we could have learnt a lot more from that that we didn't take out of it. You look at the things like, what's the program they had in New York? It was run by an English woman where they had a pilot thing where you could put your red tech through it. The problem with that approval process is, it, it, is that companies who are good at getting through approval processes will be the ones who will get through most of the time. And a lot of innovative products often don't get through those processes because the thing you really want in EdTech and in any education business are barriers to entry. And if that, if that stamp of approval is a barrier to entry, bigger companies will normally get far more of those than small companies. And, and there have been lots of these programs around the world, some in the States, some here. 
I saw another one in Europe about 18 months ago when I was doing some work for the EU and everyone got enthused about it and was going to get some money until someone put their hand up and pointed out that actually it had gone bankrupt and closed down. Okay. I'd like to answer. I think one thing that I struck by quite simply is the fact that you've got a lot of teachers who I would describe as technophobes. They don't feel very confident anyway. And I think the other issue is they don't see the relevance of this thing, whatever this thing is, in terms of what they're trying to do. If it's going to take them more time to learn how to use it, and they've got like a whole load of things that they're going to, you know, like marking and planning, all those particular things, you know, more often or not, the ed tech, okay, maybe, maybe not, will go to one side and they'll focus on it. So as I say, if they're not confident in using IT in the first place, they're not going to go near it. And if they're not wholly 100%, not 200% convinced about what it can actually do, they're not going to step to that. And that's one of the things. That's why it took, in order for me to have made the impact, and by impact, it wasn't about student outcomes. It was about staff engagement at different levels from, a, say, like a faculty perspective in terms of using devices to ease workflow, in terms of do, using devices to, um, to have different approaches to teaching and learning, in terms of actually having independent learning, all types of things. It took three years to actually go through the different processes because you're getting different people on board in different ways, depending on where they were. And year on year, once they could actually see the impact and see the differences, then you actually got the critical mass of people on board. Otherwise, it was extremely difficult. They'll be like, yeah, 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 okay, fair enough. And they'll go on to what they see as the priority. And it wasn't often the ed tech. Okay, we have one last question here. Um, talk a lot about um, ed tech obviously being specifically around technology. Mm. What about sort of blended ed tech and stuff that's learning resources for classrooms include training, include um, physical things, practical activities for kids, where the technology is used to support maybe in, in terms of the assessment or the development, but isn't the, the thing. Yeah. And how would you see that as in sort of the ed tech as a thing, and particularly in, in terms of valuation development of that within schools, both primary and secondary? Yeah. I, I would just second what, what I think Richard has said you know, at the very beginning is, is that you shouldn't be thinking about it as an ed tech market, but it is an education market. and. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if what you're doing is, you know, digitizing something and you're taking something that was physical and making it electronic, that of itself isn't the value. Um, and, and so I, I think you know, that that is um, an important point is to think about, you know, how are you improving efficiency in tech, I think is going to play a large role in that, but it's not the only you know, part of the, of the education market where there's going to be, I, I think, you know, so, some room for some innovation. I think it almost comes back to a very... When I first started doing stuff in education, and I, I say this flippantly, but I didn't really give a shit if it was machine guns for kids or barbed wire around schools if it made money. And actually, I, I realised about 10 years ago that products in education that actually work for teachers and work for kids and actually really, really help are the ones that are successful anyhow. All the sort of fancy stuff... I'll give you an example. Chris Whittle, who did Channel One, which was the sponsored news into American classrooms that was what, the first of his three big education companies that went bankrupt... You know, it just was a bad product. And, it, you know, and no matter how much financial engineering and stuff you did, it was still a crap product at the end of the day. And good products tend to be the best investments. And I don't really care whether it's ed tech. I really focus on whether it's education. I look for a team. I look for a good idea. And actually, if they don't have an educator in the founding team, it's probably never going to work. I mean, and it's a really simple thing. And the other thing that we don't talk about in ed tech that we should a lot is culture. Because I think culture is a huge dynamic that, that ed tech companies particularly get wrong. And also coming back to what Bucky was saying about 
if you look at say someone like Renaissance Learning, I think they don't sell their products to schools if you don't take the professional development. It comes bundled in. The amount of products I see that you get good salesmen slickly coming in and selling something to a school, they don't really care whether it works after they go. You know, they're just on a budget. And actually, getting teachers using stuff requires good integrated professional development with with tech as, as part of the whole sort of pantheon of resources that schools are going to have. And I think most products need to focus more on how that could operate with your product in the real world, not just in the sort of theoretical world. So um, we're at the end of our time. If you had some resources that you'd like to share with the audience, so that could be people, books, people to follow on Twitter, um, what takeaways would you like to leave everyone with on the subject of the value of EdTech tonight? If you're an entrepreneur or want to invest, you've got to go out and buy a new book by a guy called Jonathan Nee called Class Clowns. It talks about all the people who've lost billions in education, like Rupert Murdoch and Chris Whittle and, and, and various other people. And it actually highlights what works well in successful ed tech companies. And it's a really great read. I must admit, I read it twice over the weekend. Um, I, I've also got a six-month uh, free subscription to the assignment report. If you're a really smart ed tech company, you can ask me a tricky question later that I can't answer. You, you, can, you can get that. But the other thing I would say is think about if you're, if you're a company or an investor, you've got to think about business intelligence. You've got to know the sector, and you're going to have to pay money to do that. And there's plenty of resources around, but you've got to choose what you're going to buy and actually use it. Um, so I think my takeaway would be to read Mike Tricano's blog. Um, he's the lead EdTech ed specialist for the World Bank, and his blog just describes a great range of what is it that policymakers, teachers, head teachers around the world think about when they're investing in EdTech and the successes and failures of taking things to scale. And that is from fragile post-conflict countries through to emerging Asian markets to fully developed markets. Fascinating read. Okay, I've got, I've got three. Um, first and foremost, I'd say follow on Twitter the hashtag hash UK EdChat. Um, because any conversations about IT and how it's been used is actually being shared um, on there. They actually have discussions Thursdays, 8 p.m. during term time, and a lot of it actually looks at, um, at technology. That's the first thing. Secondly, I'd just say um, to look at a guide by Innovate My School. I know Michael's over here. Um, and what is useful about this particular guide is that you have educators from <coughs> primary and secondary sectors talking about how they used technology in a variety, in the most simplistic way, to whole school projects and looking at it strategically. And I think it's a really good variety of different things you can actually get involved with. And the last thing will be a book by Jay Ashcroft. It's a very long title, but basically it's a reboot. And what he's saying is the fact that um, he gives a very strategic overview. I wish I saw this book when I started my role. Because he said, you know, he said, basically said about the fact that in the last five years, we spent about, I think, about a billion pounds on EdTech and how, what impact has it had in any shape or form. He gives a very strategic overview about a lot of the different things and the key thinking you need to have. So it's, as I say, it's Reboot, a very long title, and it's by Jay Ashcroft. Uh, I'll give... Um, well, I guess one kind of uh, thought for, for ed tech companies, especially smaller ed tech companies that are just starting out, one of your primary focuses uh, really should be on who you're bringing in as mentors and, and not, you know, and thinking about, you know, kind of everyone as mentors, thinking about your first potential investors as, you know, mentors, as people who know the space, um, you know, kind of, you know, all of the professional relationships, relationships you're making in the space, think about, 
you know, um, you know, trying to work with people who know it because that really is the only way to really, I think, be successful is to surround yourself with people who, who know this space. And then for, for a resource um, for, for entrepreneurs, um, Cooley actually has, has, a, has a, a microsite, www.cooleygo.com. And despite everything we've been saying up here about there being nothing free, it is actually a free, um, <laughs> it, is a, it is a free site. Um, it has documents on there that you can just download, fill in uh, questionnaires and those sorts of things and resources. So um, it is a good cost saving measure for companies that do need a lot of front end legal work but can't afford to pay for it. Um, and mine would be, if you're interested in valuation, um, Navitas Ventures out of Australia have just done an interesting um, AI-driven map of edtech, so where money is being spent. Um, if you're interested in what educator doing in the UK, the Jefferson Education Accelerator is doing something similar in the, in the US, so you can track what conversations are happening around efficacy there. And, of course, um, there's the EdTech podcast, which is available on iTunes. <laughs> so, um, you know, it would be a miss of me to uh, not mention that. So um, I'd like everyone, if uh, we could give our audience uh, a nice round of applause for their contribution uh, this evening. Um, a quick reminder that you will be able to listen back on the EdTech podcast. Um, and thank you for listening in now, too, and for coming along this evening. We now have a final thank you from Nesta this evening for this evening's drinks and networking supported by Cooley LLPs. Thank you, Matthew. everyone if you support the mission of the edtech podcast don't forget to rate and review on itunes check out the patreon campaign or tell a friend about why you listen in have a great week and see you soon